Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives. And we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Our guest today has had a really long relationship with technology, from learning to program on a BBC Micro as a child, to designing the first full program streaming application at BBC, to Reuters, to Microsoft, and now being his own boss. Matt Ballantyne loves to talk technology. He actually has his own podcast, WB40. Check it out at WB40podcast.com. It was a lot of fun to pick his brain. In this episode, we talked about how people really use data to make decisions and how innovation happens. We also talked about his new CIO card game. I cut up with Matt in a little conference room in Moorgate, London, England. Let's dig in. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast. And I'm Ben Newton, and I'm excited to have Matt Ballantyne here with me. Thank you, Matt, for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure to be here. Even with the trains running late this morning. (laughs) (laughs) We're sitting in a a little conference room in uh, in London. I'm in London for a business trip, and I wanted to meet some people here and get some local opinions. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, pleasure to be here. Looking at your new backgrounds, I saw, you know, a couple of things. I mean, first, I, I love your title on LinkedIn. Like I was telling you before, the angel of disruption is stamps. So tell me a little bit more about Stamp and what you do right now. Okay, so Stamp has been something I've been working on for the last five years, just celebrated its fifth anniversary. It's kind of an encapsulation of the second half of my career and what I want the second half of my career to be. It doesn't actually exist as a company at the moment. I I actually operate on my own back, but it's a brand and it's a... It's the thing about doing things that are worthwhile with technology, people, and communications that will get commemorated by things like getting a set of commemorative stamps issued. It's a story that relates to something my grandfather did in the early 70s as a physicist, and you can read all about that on, on my website. But it's this kind of thing about finding work that interests me and has some sort of drive towards doing things more effectively and helping people. I like that. I was going to ask you what stamp means. I, I like that. Well, I started out in physics, so that's a good. Uh, that's that's where I went to college for. So, what kind of physics did he do, by the way? He was in telecommunications. So, in the mid '60s, he built the circuits that the first 25 years of transatlantic television broadcasts oh, between cool. the US and the UK went through at Goonhilly Down. My first memories are going out to visit him when he spent four years in Zambia, in southern Africa, setting up their first satellite Earth station. Really. So that was what the stamps were about. There was a set of stamps issued by the Zambian government commemorating the, the opening of the Mwembeshi Earth Station. Mostly, he designed valves as well. The, the, the Marconi DET-22 was one of my grandfather's, which is crazy physics. Wow, that's pretty cool. My grandfather just passed away, and he was a high-speed photographer for the Air Force and the Energy Department. And I always feel like he took pictures of atomic blasts on Hawaii and stuff like that. I always feel like when I hear what he did, I'm like, that sounds a lot cooler than sometimes what I'm doing day to day. I think you might get a kick out. He told me his, uh, the first time he set up a high-speed photography session, he actually drove the camera with a, the motor from a vacuum cleaner. I just feel like people were very creative back in the day. Look at hacking. I know hacking is a, is a human trait, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was, just, it was pretty cool. Now, before for Stamp, you know, I was looking, you, you did a whole bunch of different things. I mean, how did you... What's kind of your story of getting to where you're at? Where'd you start out? So how I started working with technology is down to being a kid and in the UK in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a massive effort to be able to equip the nation for the future. There was a thing called the uh, Computer Literacy Programme that the UK government at the time spent something like £250 million investing in 
increasing literacy around technology in yeah. the late 70s and early 80s. I was one of many, I mean, I know loads of people of my generation in the UK who started programming on things like the BBC Micro, which is a computer that was produced in conjunction with the broadcast of the BBC. So I learned to program in BBC Basic and I kind of understood how it worked, then fell into a job in computing out at the end of doing a degree in sociology and computing. But I've always had interests across multiple areas. So I did music up until the age of 18. I played saxophone and did that to a reasonable level. Never quite good enough to be professional, but good enough to know my way around it. And the social science stuff, as well as the science and maths and technology thing, I think there's a has led me down some interesting paths. I did a lot of work in media industry in the 90s and early 2000s at the BBC, kind of early stage internet. I was responsible for the design of the very first full programme BBC streaming service. So the first time that anybody could stream a full programme from the BBC was on a thing called BBC Worldwide TV, which was a business-to-business -business site. It was costing about £250 per half hour to stream, but the reason we were doing it was because it was £450 end-to-end -end cost to ship out of VHS. This was around 2000, this is like four years before YouTube. It was stupidly expensive to do it, but it was worthwhile because it was cheaper than the physical alternatives. So, interesting stuff like that, went for work for Reuters, spent a couple of years doing management training because I wanted a break, went then to work as uh, head of technology for a global marketing agency. Spent a couple of years at Microsoft doing evangelism marketing for them in the dark days, the Balmer era. And then five years since have been playing my own furrow and trying to find clients and doing interesting work across a whole range of sectors and technologies and fields. So, yeah. You've been around the block. That's one way of putting it. Maybe this is a state of my, my own nerdiness, but I... I would love to be able to put BBC Basic on my on my resume. That sounds like. To be honest, everything I do, whenever I, I don't do coding, <laughs> I've done coding on and off over the years. I'm not good at coding, but whenever I code, basically, I pass everything through BBC Basic. It's the only <laughs> way. And I don't know if everybody else does that. It's like, do you pass everything through the first language you learn in the same way that people who have a second language often, you actually are always thinking in your first language to be able to get to yeah. translate through to the second. So. Yeah, everything goes through BBC Basic. These curly bracket things from C, I've never really got my head around, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess the first language I really learned was C on a Vax, of all things. Like they, I was one of the last generation of people that were, we had a Vax at our school, learning how to program on a, I think I wrote a card game, and it had a bug, and it always lost, and that really, uh, I lost a competition because of a bug. So I learned, you know, early on, you know, why you should check your code better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, Matt, when we were talking about earlier about you, you've got so many different things that you're into, which I, I love. I'm the same way. I can, I hop from topic to topic, but we were talking about some things that were interesting to you before, before we got going. And you, you started talking a little bit about human factors, which I just found fascinating. There's a couple people that I'm planning on talking to, talking about how people deal with data, how they view data. I think you had a really interesting viewpoint about that. So tell me a little bit about where you're thinking about this lately. Yeah, so there's a few elements of this. Back in the late 1990s, I was involved with a, a fairly big data warehousing project. It was again at the BBC. And we had a great name. It was Mistral, which was uh, obviously MIS. We'd got the kind of abbreviation acronym thing going. And it was an effort to be able to test some of these technologies by aggregating data from multiple sources. It was also, though, it was kind of a Trojan horse by the finance people at the organisation to try to get people away. At the time, salespeople thought exclusively in volume 
and they weren't thinking in terms of profitability. And if you have sales teams who are incentivized and can only think in terms of the volume of the sales that they're making, not the profitability of the sales that they're making, right. you've got an issue, especially right. if the profitability on a lot of your sales is variable. <laughs> right. So you, know, you can sell one thing to one client. If you're selling something like a TV program, yeah. your costs aren't really known until you've completed the deal. And so your profitability can be quite a challenge. And actually, negative profitability isn't uncommon when you've got to do things like third-party rights clearance and all these kind of things. Oh, right, right, right. So that was a kind of big setting for this. And we spent a million quid or something. It was a relatively big investment for the organisation at the time. And it was a big, complex project that ran over a couple of years. And the end of it, it didn't really change anything. Nobody really acted any differently. And all we got was people saying, where are the sales volume reports? All this stuff about profitability is no use to us. <laughs> and, I mean, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about how these technologies worked. I learned a lot about data and data modelling and the robustness of good data modelling. And as an aside, I think that for all the talk of data science today, I think that conceptual-level data modelling in most organisations is utterly woeful. Without understanding your data conceptually, no amount of new technology is going to make your world any better. And I'm amazed oh. how few organisations rigorously model data. A lot of people, when they go into these kind of projects, they don't actually ask the questions. It's like, what is it you're trying to find yeah. out? Like, how would you actually answer that question before you even do the data? And then they get the data and they're like, oh, you know, it doesn't actually answer the question. I went, well, you, well, of course. You don't know what the product is. You don't think is. about it beforehand. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if you go into most organisations and say, what is a product? You will end up with 20 different definitions, all of which are valid. And this is where we start to get into the human factor side. So the first thing is the way in which data in systems is constrained and has to be constrained, and still to a great extent constrained by the rules that EF Cod came up with in what the late 60s around mm. relational data. Right, right, right. Which was all about constraint because of system resource availability. Right. But if you actually talk to people, if you say, what is a product? If I ask you what a product is mm. in your role in the organisation, and I go and ask your CTO or I go and ask your accounts payable people, they will all have different answers and right. all of those answers are valid. And the inconsistency that there is across those definitions is really important because that's about meaning and that's mm. about understanding and that's about why we segment organisations into your department and their department right. and their department. All that stuff comes together. But the other problem, I think, and I don't see with all the wonderful technologies that we have today and all of the depth of data that we have potentially available right. to us today that I don't see changing is there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how humans make decisions that yeah. goes on in the world of data. And that misunderstanding is that people make decisions based on data. They don't most of the time or some of the time or... Daniel Kahneman has written loads about this, the idea of the two modes of thinking, fast thinking and slow thinking, mm -hmm. the idea of the gut reaction and then the methodical type one thinking and, and type two thinking, the methodical how do we come to a conclusion by analysis and thought. And what happens with data is some people at some time will make decisions based on data. So, for example, this morning I looked at the weather forecast, which itself is the culmination of a whole bunch of big data, real proper right. big data processing. Right, right, right. And the weather forecast told me that it would probably be raining for this morning, so therefore I made a decision to wear a coat, right? That is data-driven decision-making. Most of the time, I will think about things in terms of, I think this is a good idea, therefore I will find the data to validate my decision. And that's not an 
valid way of making decisions. That's a perfectly valid way of making decisions. And actually, the gut instinct and the being able to find data to validate the gut instinct is the way that most businesses work. And that doesn't actually get supported very well necessarily by the way in which technology and technologists think about how data is presented to people because they right. think in this nice logical way you present data to a decision maker and the decision maker will make a sensible decision based on the data. That ain't the way it works. Yeah. And so for all the stuff that we have now, what I'm not seeing is really much discourse at the moment about actually what are the systems and tools that we need to help us make effective decisions in a way that is human rather than in a way that is based on the idea of a logical construct that doesn't really exist. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting the way you, you talk about that because there are a couple other things that I've been reading because now that I've been kind of looking at interesting people to talk to and I think there is kind of, we're, we're kind of coming to deal with this, like what's the cultural context of the data? I'm reading um, one interesting book about, she was calling it data humanism. And there's, there seems to be a couple different concepts, but they seem to be all getting at what you're talking about because there's, there is something in the way that a human with a certain level of experience, they, those gut instincts are not, they're not necessarily wrong. They're based on all these kind of unconscious, like below the top level sense of how the world works. And it's just a, you know, at a certain point when we get really good at something, if you have somebody that's risen to the top of the organization, they're really good at it. They're actually making decisions based kind of implicitly on all this like knowledge and experience they've gained over time. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You then also have to bear in mind that you know, for all of the talk that we have at the moment about artificial intelligence, very little of it is intelligence, most of it's statistics. Right. <laughs> and one of the gaps that I see between where we are today and some sort of sentient device in the future is this idea of heuristics and this idea of actually things that actually at the moment often the technology world sees as bugs to be removed, this ability to be able to make decisions on the basis not of logic, when you phrase it like that, you think, oh, actually, that's going to be a real hard play for a computer to do, isn't it? To make a decision not based on logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that going to work? Or actually consciously be able to make mistakes. Because the other thing, if we, you know, if we look back at history, take something like the invention of penicillin. The invention of penicillin, or the discovery of penicillin, came about because of the mistake of Fleming not cleaning up his pots. You know, the idea of making mistakes deliberately or allowing mistakes to happen. But then having, having that gut instinct or that, that intuition that to recognize the value of what just happened. You're not just going to have anybody walk off the street and figure, oh, I didn't clean my bowl and there's, you know, I can even... No, no, no absolutely. absolutely. And that's that, it's that combination of being open to ideas and... And that's the idea then about, I'm reading a, a really interesting book at the moment about causation. It's quite a hard going book and it gets into maths very early. But it's a guy who spent much of his career working in the world of developing artificial intelligences. And what he argues is that we're still so far away from it because actually we're at a very low level at the moment where none of the systems that we're dealing with at the moment have any concept of the idea of causation or understanding causation. What Fleming, when he saw that dirty pot and what had happened to the bacterial growth, was able to do was to make some guesses about causation. Connections that he could based on what he knew. Exactly, yeah. based on his prior knowledge, mm. to then be able to then test to be able to find out what was actually the thing that enables modern life. We forget penicillin actually doesn't only enable us to be able to cure things that are, as a result of bacteria, they also allow us to have most major surgery these days. Without penicillin, you can't go under the, the doctor's knife. Right, right, right. Uh, hugely, hugely transformational thing. That kind of intuition plus 
you know, there's data there, but it's not data in the sense of nice structured rows and it's yeah. not logic and it was from an accident. And, and that's the sort of thing that actually is why we are humans and we can create things like these amazing technologies. It's interesting the way that I think you now describe it, because like I said, I, I originally started out in, in science and I always was interested in people like Einstein and Feynman and stuff like that. And they were very intuition-based yeah. scientists. Not all physicists are that way, but they would... It seems to be their strength, and I think they even showed that in the neurology, is that it's, it's about the connections they would make, and that they would intuitively make those connections. And then, I guess it's kind of connecting with me what you're saying, because then what Einstein and others that were trying to, so they were trying to then find the data to support that idea. So intuitively, this makes sense to me. I've sat down and worked through this. I've made connections based on how I understand how the world works. Okay, now I need to go see if the data actually supports me. But at the end of the day, they're looking for things that align with their intuition. They're not going out and looking for everything. They're no, looking absolutely. for something that aligns to it. Absolutely. And then sometimes you can use data to be somewhat jokingly, not entirely jokingly, but somewhat jokingly, as a retort to the concept of data science, which is statistics, is the idea of data jazz, which is about going into data and improvising with I it. I like that. And how might you look... And I do this all the time. I get data sets, all sorts of things. Some of it is work-related, some of it's just idle curiosity. And then investigate the data by looking at the data. I'll often, with sort of survey data, I'll do a lot of manual processing of survey data because by actually getting your hands into it, you're able to understand it in a way that if you just let the machines do it for you sometimes, I mean, it's not practical in all cases, but if I'm doing relatively small survey type things, actually getting in and hand-coding it and classifying it by hand. Well, even if you're splicing it in a different way. I yeah. mean, you, you, let the, you let the computer do it, but it's like, well, what if I actually did it by this set of characteristics? Or, you and I think similar that way because, you know, part of what I've had to do in my career, particularly in the last few years with Sumo, is going and looking at customers' data and trying to help them, you know, get insights out of it, right? But that's what I enjoy is going there. It's really good to plan ahead, and I think that's the right way to do it. You know, kind of what we're talking about is you, you got to know the questions you want to ask your data and talk about it. But it's also really fun to go in there and see, well, what if I do this? What if I do that? Well, it's like, oh, I see something I didn't... Yeah, I don't think... I mean, again, this is one of the things that we have this idea, the problem-solution paradigm, which, again, I think is something that is determined by technology and engineering and, to an extent, design, actually, as well. I've been working a little bit recently with this quadrant of helping people to understand the sorts of challenges they're dealing with. And you've got known problems with known solutions, and that's a kind of classic waterfall type stuff. Right. We need to span this river, we need to put a bridge on a road over it, and we know, how to, it, build we know how to build bridges, and you know, there's some variable factors in it, but we kind of know how to do that. Yeah. Or we need to be able to implement a new wireless network. You know, it's a kind of fairly known problem, fairly known solution. You've got known problems with unknown solutions, and that's the domain of Agile. And actually, as you discover more about the problem, you might discover that it's not the problem you first thought it was, and that's quite common. And with that world, I say the Agile kind of approach works really well. Agile approaches with known problems and known solutions tend to be a bit of a charade because you end up yeah. doing a lot of ceremony for no value. For no reason, right. You've got known solutions to unknown problems. This is something that the tech industry is pretty good at being able to generate, and they're like, what is the point of that? The UK is going through a massive one of these at the moment with Brexit, which is this <laughs> like massively defined answer with no known problem or anything. And, you know, look at the country for the next 20 years and we're bashing our heads against a brick wall with it. And then the really interesting one is where you have 
unknown problems and unknown solutions. So if you've got an emergent technology, you take something like distributed ledgers or you take something like what you might be able to do with machine learning. Nobody has any answers to that really at the moment. It's all speculative. A lot of it gets defined as defined solutions to unknown problems. And the whole blockchain stuff at the moment is way in that category. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all nonsense. I'm glad to hear somebody say that. Oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, you're not allowed to say the emperor is naked. So. Um, <laughs> but actually, how do organisations generate their ability to be able to assess new technologies where they don't know if there is some sort of solution there and they don't know if there's some sort of problem there? This idea of how do you establish a sense of play within organisations, a curiosity of being able to do things because what might happen, not because here is a business case that says precisely what will happen. And organisations really struggle with it, large organisations really struggle with that because we have become so locked into problem-solution paradigm, so locked into business case thinking. Business case thinking is the death of most agile projects within corporations as well. Right, yeah, absolutely. But again, one of the things that I've been exploring over the last couple of years is ways about being able to bring concepts of play into organisations to help them explore into that unknown, unknown category. And whether that's what might data allow us to do, we don't know. How do we play with it? How do we put things in place that enable us to be able to explore it without really any preconceptions to be able to work out if there are opportunities there? That sort of way of thinking, I think, it's not ever going to be a massive part of any big established corporation. But you've got to have space for it. You've got to have some space for it. And too often what I hear is we don't have time for the luxury of play. We don't have time, space or money to do that. And that becomes problematic for organisations because they will never be able to do anything other than just follow what everybody else is You can't innovate if you don't have... Exactly. Yeah, because I I think that's one thing I've definitely seen. And and I think the older I get, the more of a problem for me personally becomes is leaving that amount of time so you have that flex. So if you're 100% occupied all the time and you've got, you know, because it's like meetings all day or like, oh, this, you know, because when you don't have that time to sit there and think and absorb and let your mind wander, that's when the best things happen from like an innovation perspective. There's going to be stuff where you just have to crank. Absolutely. And for me, I mean, I, I... Pretty rigorously, you know, the old Google 20% time, yeah, yeah, yeah. 120% time, as I've heard some people in Google <laughs> yeah, refer yeah. to it. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, but I do. I have a day a week where I am doing stuff that isn't fee earning and is either meeting new people or exploring ideas or playing with stuff. I love that. Because I know that actually my livelihood depends on it. I have to make that time. I have to be able to do the stuff to be able to have any credibility to say, I can help you think about how you innovate as an organisation or I can help you to think about how you do things differently. If I'm not living that, I have no credibility with that. No, I really, I really like that. And I think, I think it's interesting the way you, you also say like with other people because, I mean, everybody has a different method, but that's what I find like sometimes even just spending an hour with somebody talking through an idea. Yeah. I will come out and it's worth more than a whole day of this you know, cranking through other stuff. is like, that can like completely set my week on fire if I do that. Absolutely. And it's one of the, I mean, the podcast that I've been running for a year and a half or so now, uh, which your CTO Christian came on a few weeks back. Right. And that initially started, I really want to do a podcast because I used to do radio when I was a student. <laughs> and that was kind of it. And then it got into, let's get this thing going. And my mate Chris, we said, yeah, he'll, okay, we'll do it. Because I didn't feel that like I could do it on my own because it would just be far too egotistical. Um, <laughs> You're doing it under the banner of a brand, so you're fine as well. I'm not accusing you of being an egomaniac in any way. Um, 
But uh, the interview's the, over. Next. Exactly. Yeah. But what what happened from that was that it then evolved into well, actually, this is a really good way. It's a good vehicle to be able to say I now have a reason to go and talk to lots of yeah. people. Yeah. And the people we've spoken to have been all sorts from, you know, technology people, sure, but we've also spoken to artists, we've talked to people in the world of communications, we've talked to HR people, we've talked to recruitment people, across all sorts of things, because I just want to go in and talk to interesting people and learn from them. You know, you're exactly right. And that's what I, I think when I first, you know, thought of the ideas, I was like, well, I've always wanted to do one. But then I came to that realization. It's like, this is a, it's basically an excuse to talk to interesting yeah, people. absolutely. That's good enough. There is a very much tendency, and I think it's kind of around everything we've been talking, is there's a, there's a real tendency to stay within your swim lane. It's like, oh, I'm in software, I do consulting, I do this, and I talk to people that are in my strict swim lane. And then go, because like the one, like the data humanism part I was talking about, there's a, a book out there called Dear Data, but she's doing, she's visualizing data in a very art-focused way. And actually going exploring things like that, it's not something I would do for my strict job function, but being able to have afford the time to go out and explore those things. And I'm getting that sort of input in. So I was, uh, there's a, another podcast I listen to called Song Exploder, which is a thing, it's part of the Radiotopia Network, and they they talk to musicians about how they created pieces of music. Oh, that's cool. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. Go and you're a musician, I'm a musician, so it's, it's fascinating from a kind of technical perspective. But also, again, the kind of random input. So that they recently had a guy on who was talking about how he purposefully creates things to be able to destroy them as part of his creative process. So there's this idea in my head that's been banging around for a few weeks now, and I don't know where it will go, but this idea of how would you build things in technology purposefully to destroy them as part of a creative process of creating best technology. Well, and you gotta be willing to throw away what you worked on. Yeah, hmm. and that feels very... It's hard. Yeah, very, very away from the culture of technology, but also seems like an incredibly powerful creative and innovation tool to be able to do different things. And so it will sit there and it will fester in my head and then eventually it will pop out at some point. I really like that. I think that it seems to just be coming back at that time is allow yourself, allow yourself to fail, allow yourself to explore and be willing that that exploration may not always take you somewhere. Every time. I, I would though, I urge caution to the term failure. <laughs> right? Because anybody who thinks it's not culturally loaded is a bad thing. Oh, it's totally culturally yeah? loaded. You're absolutely so we talk, right. So we talk about experiments, not failure. If you frame it negatively, you know, I'm not a big Tony Robbins-esque positive thinker. Well, I'm it's cynical like as the me, next me living man. in Silicon Valley. It's like everyone should fail, embrace failure. And it's actually, it's yeah, I, I liked it. Experimentation yeah. is the right word. And of course, in Silicon Valley, most people do fail horrifically. <laughs> But all we They're hear about, away, yeah. which again is this idea of there's a thing called survivorship bias, back to the human factor. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. only focus on the Elon Musk and then say, if we just did what Elon did, then we then would we'll all be like be. Elon. Exactly. Actually, not really. Yeah. <laughs> One thing, you know, I guess making a, a transition here when we're talking about play. So you, when we were coming and talking about things to talk about, you showed me this new card game that you have and you said... I just found this fascinating, so talk to yeah, us a little bit about what so th you're doing. This, this is my first product under the brand of Stamp, and as I said, I've been, I'm thinking around ideas of how play and games might be able to be used in a more serious business setting, and that's nothing new in that, but just thinking about it in my own little way. And a number of things came together. I've been a member of the CIO 100 judging panel in the UK for the last four years, and so I've got a lot of insight into what the mood of the CIO is in the UK. I also recently bought a set of oblique strategy cards, which is something that Brian Eno has mm. developed over the years. He first developed in the early 70s, and it's a pack of 100 cards, which each has got fairly oblique advice on them. So they got 
two steps forward, one back. Oh, jeez. Or use only the black notes or whatever it might be. And people like David Bowie use these as, as creative aids. Yeah. So I was thinking about how... The, these things, they're sitting on my desk and thinking about how some of this stuff might be brought together. And so I've created this thing called CIO Priorities, and it's very much a prototype at the moment, but it's a set of playing cards. And what they have is a series of the sorts of things that I am seeing CIOs talk about as being their priorities. And there's 50 of them. Uh, there could be 100, 100, 200, 300 more of them, to be blunt. But using a set of cards with these different priorities on as a way of being able to work with tech vendors to be able to help them understand how marketing, particularly to senior technology people, isn't about talking about product, because product is just not on the agenda for most senior technology people. Using it with technology leaders themselves as a way of being able to stress test their own strategies. So one of the games I'm working on is the idea of draw a card from random from the pack and say, is that part of your strategy at the moment? And if not, if you were told tomorrow it has to be, how would you accommodate it? Dark World would say you could just use this card set to be able to create your own IT strategy, but I would say that was an inappropriate use of the cards. <laughs> uh, the other one, and I'm going to be trying this in a couple of weeks' time, is to be able to use it with people who aren't technology leaders, but senior leaders in organisations, mm. and get them to understand what the agenda is for the CIO at the moment, and what is part of they would see as a shared agenda, and what are things that are exclusively the domain of the the CIO or CTO. So there's loads of ways in which these can be used, but it's just this idea about being able to try to be able to bring an element of exploration and curiosity into what is otherwise a really dull, dry yeah. subject. When you first pulled this out, as soon as you pulled out cards, even before you said what they were, you already you already had me. I like the visceral effect of it. Yeah, like, there's you, something you, about tactility of... Yeah, absolutely, because you're, you're interacting with something physical. And I know, like, as a... as a geek, I always want to go to, like, well, if you need to put it on a dashboard, why does it need to be physical? But I think I've... I realize this is a personal interaction because you, you and I were talking about, we've both interacted with like the, uh, I used to do the airplane game for learning ITIL when I worked for BMC Software and you, you were saying something about like a shipping yeah, game. Yeah, there was a port simulation I think that they did. I've seen other versions of that, even now with my, my kids actually, funny enough, is like I was, I was playing Monopoly with my daughter for the first time and like seeing her, just the concepts it can introduce and like, and it's how people come to terms with, a, with an idea by interacting with it and not feeling like they, it lowers the, well, what's it, stress level is the right word? It's like... It, it lowers... it, it, yeah, it gives people ability. I've, I've also been doing some stuff using Lego, which Lego themselves have created this thing called Serious Play. Which yeah, is I really, saw that. Yeah. I, I really want to try um, that. It looks cool. I just created... You can get a big box of Lego for about 35 quid. It's not expensive facilitation material. And there's a couple of games I've been using which have been developed to be able to explore ideas of teamworking and collaboration. Mm. And one of the things that i found with Lego is that people will engage with it across the board. If you get a group of people and you say, could you draw something? You'll have refuseniks in the room and they'll immediately say, I can't draw, I yeah. can't do that. I had to yeah. write words. If you give people Lego, I've yet to find anybody who cannot play with Lego. And so to be able to explore ideas or to be able to rapidly prototype or to be able to get people to visualize things, fantastic tool to be able to do that. And again, it feels incongruent, I think, because we're so used to, you know the sad thing? We're so used to business places being places of tedium, <laughs> right? It's the Protestant work ethic thing that is so strong in, certainly UK culture, I think is pretty strong in US oh, culture. Absolutely. And it's this idea that if you're not having a bad time, you can't be working. You've got to be in pain, because by being in pain, you are showing your devotion to work and therefore you will take your rightful place in heaven or whatever it is that comes out at the end of this madness. Now, 
I don't believe people work well when they're in pain. I don't believe people work well when they're bored. I don't believe people work well when they're hating the stuff. To bringing elements of fun and enjoyment and engagement, and it's a no-brainer for me, but it's, yeah. it's really hard to do. Well, it's connecting back to like where you and I started. I, I think this is what really is connecting the human to yeah, what absolutely. it is we do, right? Because it's humans are not machines, and the way you, you understand how to be itself software with people to work with them in groups is to, is to understand it. Instead of trying to control the human and put the human in a track, you provide some room for the human to explore and, and learn, and you've got to provide room for that. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to go, like, you know, spend some time to, like, crank out the stuff that needs to get done. That, but I think people are more willing to do that. I think that's the key, right? You know, it's like, well, if I get excited that I'm able to grow as a person and interact with this, then I'm willing to go do the grind. Absolutely. And actually, the grind becomes enjoyable because the grind is actually... You know, there's you know that, the concept of flum, uh, of, sorry, of flum, of flow. <laughs> flum is something completely different. And it, it's, a, it's a lovely product and available in four different colours. Um, but no, the, the idea of flow and that idea of when you are in that state of, I'm really enjoying this and I, I can just do this for hours and hours and hours and hours. There should be more work like that. And it's important there should be work like that because that's when you get good work out of people. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, Matt, on that note, I really appreciate you taking the time to come out here, even uh, with the late train and taking the time to come to the office. Thank you for your time. I really You're appreciate very it. Welcome. It's me. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com.